between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. The day after Richmond fell, Abraham Lincoln came to Richmond. He came to this house. General Weitzel says, Mr. President, how should we treat these people? And Lincoln says, let him up easy. Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy, and that's kind of hard to miss considering all of the monuments to Confederate war heroes throughout the city. It is very rare for the losing side of a war to have monuments. Guess what else is real rare in world history? The whole way we ended the Civil War. But those statues take on a really charged feeling for people. We have a clash around memory and heritage and what it means with regard to the American Civil War. Civil wars usually end with the losers going to the hangman's noose, the guillotine, to prison, to exile or something. And in this case, they just went home. In America today, almost half the country believes that the Civil War was about states' rights. But the historical record shows that the Civil War was about slavery. I talked to Waite Rawls, the former president of the Museum of the Confederacy, to get some answers. Was slavery the principal cause of that political dispute? Yeah, yeah. I, there's no way to, de to deny that. But to say Confederacy is synonymous with racist is to connote, and nobody else was, and they were all by themselves in that. 99% of the white people living in the United States in 1860 were racist, including Abraham Lincoln. Initially, Lincoln was not in favor of giving blacks voting rights, or allowing them to hold office, or even intermarry with whites. Eventually, he did make incredible steps forward in terms of equal rights, like the 13th Amendment and the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. But his main priority at the time was keeping the Union together. So he also pardoned all the Confederates and vetoed legislation banning slavery altogether. Back then, white supremacy was the nation's prevailing social order throughout all of the Union. Another side of reconciling is we got to push those African-Americans out of the way. They're in the way to the national reconciliation of the white North and the white South. That gives ground for the lost cause politically, which was we couldn't have been wrong. We simply must have been outnumbered. The lost cause was a national propaganda campaign to misrepresent what the Civil War was actually about. The main tenets of the Lost Cause are that the Confederacy was fighting for states' rights, not slavery. That slaves had great working conditions, were loyal to their masters, and often fought for the Confederacy. Portraying slave owners as kind and Southerners in general as more steeped in Christian values in order to make the case that they were fighting for a just cause and only lost because they were outnumbered. It is a reflection of a need for Southerners to reconcile their grief over significant losses. The total disruption initially of their social order of white supremacy, whether you were slaveholding or not, 
But how did we get to a point where a propaganda campaign became American history? General Moore at 99 follows the heroic dead of the South to a soldier's grave in Selma, Alabama, as the last tiny handful of the boys in gray prepares for the final Confederate reunion in Norfolk, Virginia. The women who are most responsible for this did an extraordinary job. A lot of the lost cause narratives can be traced back to funerals for Confederate soldiers and the women they left behind after the war. Women all over the South started creating memorial associations to collect the bodies of Confederate soldiers, properly bury them, and create monuments to their fallen heroes. One of the most prominent groups was the Confederate Memorial Literary Society. They send out a call to prominent white women throughout the South and say, we have to preserve the legacy of our loved ones. And they open up what they call the Confederate Museum, and it is a hit. It was a shrine. It was a shrine to the Confederacy. Each room of the house was set up with these artifacts from each of the Confederate states. But it's only their story. If black folk are represented, it's because they are the loyal, loving slaves, supposedly. One of the underrepresented stories of the American Civil War is the U.S. colored troops. At the end of the war, there were more black men in blue uniforms than white men in uh, gray uniform. People need to know that. We have completely removed black people from the narrative when they were central to it. The Lost Cause made its way into popular culture through films like Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. The Confederates need it, so we's going to dig for the South. Don't worry, we'll stop them Yankees. Goodbye, Big Sam. Goodbye, boys. And eventually found its way into school textbooks and even legislation. This group has nothing to do with discrimination that Congress prohibits, nor do they advocate radical... 1910, they make the decision that, hey, no more textbooks that speak ill of the Confederacy. And that persists until today in some places. In 2018, Christie and Waite decided to merge their museums to provide a more accurate picture of the Civil War from multiple perspectives. What you want is for people to form their own perspective fully informed. What's the harm in people not knowing the lost cause? The harm comes when there is a disrespect for dignity of life that becomes sort of generational because it's grounded in a series of lies. The history has never been about the dead people, really. It's always about us and the moment that we're in and the issues we're trying to contemplate and wanting to understand sort of this connective tissue. It's always been that. Do you feel like Richmond is going through its own sort of truth and reconciliation process through these challenging discourses, disagreements, and representations of the city? I think Richmond is going through a period of awakening. The only way that you really can come to some form of conciliatory behavior is when everybody finally understands it and, and has um, a desire to move forward in a more equitable way. This is what we do in museums. The challenge is helping people build new memories so they can create a more accurate heritage. heritage. In, in order to understand uh, the system of white supremacy, you take in all of the areas of activity. And what is a white supremacist? A white supremacist is any white person that believes in dominating, mistreating a person based on color. And any white person that does that has instantly, within the system of white supremacy, become one of the most powerful people in the world. They are among the most powerful because that, that makes them a part of that group that runs anything that's important that's going on on this planet that has to do with non-white people. That person instantly becomes one of them.
And that's a lot of power. A lot of power. Because they are the smartest and most powerful people on the planet. Anytime you're a member of that club, not some person is just walking around with a, a robe on and a pointed hat and, and with some cutouts mm -hmm. for the eyes and whatnot. We call them Ku Klux Klansmen. Uh, that's what black people usually associate with white supremacy. The white supremacist is any white person who is able to practice white supremacy and who does so by mistreating a non-white person just by telling a non-white person something that's not true. Just mm -hmm. on that alone, any white person that walks up to you today and tells you anything that's not true, that's a white supremacist right there. Just on that alone. Because that's one of the worst things that can happen mm -hmm. to a non-white person. A non-white person. For a white person to tell them something that's not so. I think they mean black. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just another way to say thug or something else, right? Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Uh, it is what it is. It doesn't belong to us anymore. Hmm. And, you know, once something goes out in the world, it takes a life of its own. It's an energy of its own. I can tell you what woke means. Please. It just means being aware, being in alignment with nature. Because if you're in alignment with that, you're aware of everything that's going on. And it's not only in the political arena. That means with your health. That means in your relationships. That means in your home. That means in your car. It means mm. in your sleep. Your sleep. My question, you were speaking earlier about white feminism uh, being central to white supremacy. And as you were, were speaking about the 20th century, the first thing that came into my head, because I live in the, in the South, I live here in North Carolina, and plus I read a lot. History has always been one of my favorite subjects. But when you were speaking on that, the first thing that came to my mind was a group called the Daughters of the Confederacy. That oh yeah yeah these okay, yes. yeah these groups uh, started around the turn of the of the century in the 1920s and are largely responsible for a lot of the white supremacist statutes we see so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that if you had looked at that as part of your analysis oh, yeah. of them well see this is what's interesting I mean you know the idea of womanhood in the 19th century and early 20th century was pretty much synonymous to to mother and community. Um, you have women, you know, giving grand speeches. I mean, even black women uh, in the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory talking about how women make the laws of society. Um, so it was not a situation where women didn't feel themselves actually contributing to and growing uh, society and in many ways dictating social organization. Uh, the Daughters of the Confederacy were largely responsible for, they were auxiliaries, sometimes often working through churches to get um, monies to uh, create monuments of the of the fallen soldiers, right? Uh, so they were responsible. I called you know for the lost cause memorials, and the lost cause memorials that you find throughout the South. There's one actually in my city in Lake Charles, um, is honoring the the soldiers of the fallen cause, which was the Civil War, that tried to preserve the agrarian uh, <laughs> economy and legacy of slavery in the United States. Uh, so the view was was that it was a lost cause, but it was a righteous cause that should be respected and remembered, which is why you have these statues and monuments all through the South, you know, on various college campuses, et cetera. Um, what's amazing about that is that it really does show the ways that white women have sought to inculcate and perpetuate the ideas and memories of white supremacy. Um, I think one of the biggest flaws that we have in, a, as, as this, in this country, and especially as theorists, is that we somehow take a post-civil rights view of how we view discrimination. So during the civil rights movement, because white women were defined as minorities, what we've done is we've automatically said that they are minorities. We've taken a view of Title VII in the Civil Rights Act to suggest that these are the minorities that the world has, has given us, uh, where acts of genocide, imperialism, and empire um, somehow just don't matter anymore. They're not something that we focus on. It's not what we teach or draw our attention to when we talk about racism. So I think the Daughters of Confederacy, very much like WKKK chapters that sprung up all around the country during the, you know, uh, 
first, second decades of the of the 1900s, um, very much are in line with the kind of pro-white supremacist agenda that we in many ways seeing being supported today under the reign of Trump. Um, these are white women who voted for Trump. These are white women who support his policies. These are white women who believe in the vision of a white republic. Uh, so we cannot be mistaken uh, in the idea that white women have historically and continue to be uh, solidly committed to the project of white superiority in this country. Conservative group Moms for Liberty is holding its national summit in Tampa this weekend. That convention kicking off today with Governor Ron DeSantis as the keynote speaker talking about the work they've done in schools throughout the pandemic and helping to protect parents' rights. We have live team coverage from both the summit and the protests happening outside. First, we want to start with ABC Action News reporter Mary O'Connell, who joins us live from the event. Mary, how many people are expected to attend this summit? Well, organizers expect around 500 people at this summit and a big message that was relayed to people here today, the important role and highlighting that important role that parents have in advocating for their kids in schools. Kathy Julian has five children and tells me she wanted to find out what Moms for Liberty was all about. Our governor is a rock star. Um, his wife is also a rock star. Uh, they support parents and they support um, educators and they support moms and kids. She's just one of many at the Moms for Liberty National Summit in Tampa. The group says it's a nationwide advocacy group for the empowerment of parents. A keynote speaker Friday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We have drawn a very clear line in the sand that says our school system is for educating kids, not indoctrinating kids. DeSantis talked about their fight on masks and vaccine mandates in schools, critical race theory, as well as their handling of COVID in the classroom. The governor explaining they've also made it clear to say parents have a fundamental role in the education of their kids. They have an important role, a vital role, and we have made sure in the state of Florida to not just talk the talk with parents' rights, but to walk the walk with parents' rights. There's nothing more powerful than a group of moms that are all on a phone change chain about their kids. ABC Action News political analyst Susan McManus tells me the main thing DeSantis did was energize the crowd to go back home and work hard to elect people they support to school boards. And the unusual part of all this is rarely have school board races mattered that much. All of a sudden, they're the focal point, not just all over Florida, but across the country at large. Parents here standing together, ready to raise their voices. Often the case that activism boils up from the bottom, not the top down. Activism of whom? Just everyday people. And there's nothing that gets more everyday than moms. <laughs>
There's a new front opening in the ongoing battle for civil rights. This is a war of words. I have the honor and privilege of introducing the combatant of critical race theory, a champion for parental rights, and our warrior for Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand to your feet for the best governor in the nation, Governor Ron DeSantis! It's December of 2021, and Governor Ron DeSantis is introducing a new bill he plans to push through the legislative session. He calls it the Stop Woke Act. Woke Act. It codifies a new rule from the State Department of Education that bans discussions about critical race theory in public K-12 schools. And this will do a number of things that are very important. One, it will put into statute uh, the Department of Education's prohibition on CRT in K through 12 schools. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other. During the 2022 legislative session, lawmakers passed the bill. It puts restrictions on how issues of race and history can be discussed in public school classrooms and workplaces. The legislation itself does not directly mention critical race theory, a concept that examines how racism has influenced government policy. But it's clear that was a driving factor in the governor's support of the new law. Law. You have absolute control over a word that you invented and did not give a definition to. And you can go around and apply that word to things, you can apply it to people, you can apply it to animals, and you can cause all kinds of chaos. Because why? The people who take the word seriously, without knowing what the word is supposed to mean, exactly, and here again, without knowing what the word doesn't mean, all right? (laughs) See, people don't even think about that. What is it all the things that the word the N-word, do not mean. Yes. Can you make a list of the things that this word does not apply to? All right. No, the word has no boundaries. Why? Because it has no definition. And any word that doesn't have a definition has power. All right. I can call you something and laugh. And if you don't know what I'm calling you, I can drive you crazy. I get other people to laugh when I use the word, but I apply it to you. I just apply it to to nobody but you. This word fits you, but I don't give it a definition. I never tell you what it means or what it doesn't mean. But anytime I use it, you start feeling feeling bad. And I start using it and get other people to use it. And they use it toward you. And you start feeling worse. Next thing you know, you're crazy. You have been driven absolutely insane. And I have complete control. But the formula is you simply ask questions. Because what does the code say? All problems are solved through the process of questions and answers. Mm-hmm. So if the N-word is a problem, and with a lot of people, that word is a problem. It's no problem with me. i got complete control of that word. All right, it's no problem with me at all. You can call me that all day long in any setting, and it has absolutely no effect because of what? Because I understand what the white supremacists are doing with it. Only thing between me and somebody else is that I have that understanding mm-hmm. that the word has a meaning, and the meaning is supposed to be derogatory when it's used toward me. Mm-hmm. But they don't say why. Okay. All right. So, so that's the key. If you understand that, the word loses its power immediately. I mean, like you've been worried about the word forever, you can drop it right this minute simply by that formula. By that formula. I mean, it's gone. It's gone, mm-hmm. forever. Nobody can ever touch you with that word. I don't care what they do. Mm-hmm. I don't care how many white people sit around all day long and write it on the walls. You can look at it and it won't mean anything. Why? Because you chose to think that it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. That's just a choice. That's just a choice. So when yeah, those guys... That's a, that's a choice by you. You make that choice. They know that. Know that.
Then when we look at some of your work here. Yes. Uh, what does this mean to you visually? This album cover, we're looking at New America Part One, Fourth World War. Inside yeah, I mean, of the Afro are so many different things. You know, they're signs of the time. They're in my mind. Yeah. Because New America Part One was me standing on an apex or standing at the top of something, observing everything. There are no solutions in this album. It's just what <laughs> I've what I've observed. Thomas Dewey said, "Okay, a problem well stated is a problem half solved." I understand that. <laughs> Could be, but we did start a lot of stuff on there. Yeah, um, there's a song on this particular album called "Master Teacher," and in that song, "Master Teacher," the chorus is "I stay woke." I stay mm. woke. So, "Stay Woke" was introduced to the world by way of this album, "New America Part One," and uh, I tweeted it about this uh, group that was uh, detained, Pussy Riot. They're this. Uh, group of activists who are artists and in my tweet I said free pussy riot and hashtag stay woke after that woke took off your art yeah took this concept ideas and words can evolve but it really put this out this idea we should wake up to these problems and stay woke sure we track how you started it and how it spread and then how some on the on the right are sort of hijacking or attacking it or giving it a different definition. Sure. So I want to play this for you since you bring it up and then you, we could talk about it. Aye. Aye. I want my culture to stay woke, but I want the other cultures that's supporting us to stay woke. Woke fascism that will <laughs> destroy our nation. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. I think they mean black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just another way to say thug or something else, right? Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Uh, it is what it is. It doesn't belong to us anymore. Mm. And, you know, once something goes out in the world, it takes a life of its own. It's an energy of its own. I can tell you what woke means. Please. It just means being aware, being in alignment with nature. Because if you're in alignment with that, you're aware of everything that's going on. And it's not only in the political arena. That means with your health. That means in your relationships. That means in your home. That means in your car. It means mm. in your sleep. <laughs> Woke. Here is how Merriam-Webster's dictionary describes it. Aware of and actively attentive to important societal facts, especially issues of racial and social justice. Now, it's a word that we all hear a lot of these days, and woke was coined by black activists to bring attention to racial injustice, but these days conservatives are working overtime to redefine it to suit their political ends, so much so that it may very well have lost all of its meaning. Take, for example, this noted conservative, who this week struggled to come up with her own definition. Would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple times, and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that... Um, I... This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re -to totally reimagine and re re redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15-second soundbite. And she was absolutely right. It did go viral. But beyond that viral moment. Uh, the, the issue actually is what she said at the end, which is how complicated is it to define woke? Um, here's her follow-up tweet explaining her actual definition. She says, it's a radical belief system suggesting that our institutions are built around discrimination and claiming that all disparity is a result of that discrimination. It seeks a radical redefinition of society in which equality of group result is the endpoint enforced by an angry mob. 
Now, to me, one of the issues here isn't so much that she couldn't do it in that moment. It's really that the definition that, that she's putting forward is one that has been created by mm. conservatives in the last couple of, I mean, let's call it 18 to 20 months since the summer of 2020. Um, and it's been created uh, in order to sort of attack the idea of social injustice as a concept, it seems. I always understood, well, initially when this term came out, I, I understood it to be understanding our nation's history to inform us about societal barriers currently. Um, it seems, however, that's sort of become a catch-all to for certain politicians to appeal to the grievances and anger of certain voters in times that are convenient to those certain politicians. Um, it, I've heard it in debates ranging from uh, why certain topics shouldn't be taught in classrooms to why certain banks have failed in the past couple weeks. Uh, <laughs> which to me says that you are kind of picking and choosing this word for when it's convenient to you. Well, I, mean, um, I, I, I want to bring Ramesh in on this because I, 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 I understand that you are probably more sympathetic to Bethany's uh, definition than, than some other people might be. But I think the question is, if it's so hard to define does it just come, kind of come to mean whatever anybody wants it to mean? Well, that's the nature of a lot of political terms, right? I mean, conservatism and liberalism or ultra-maga republicanism, as President Biden likes to say, all of these things are sort of fuzzy concepts, and different people are going to give you different definitions of it. I do think that we should try to be as precise as possible when we're arguing about a specific thing, um, to talk about that specific thing and not to go straight to this abstract term. I, I think, though, that that the the general phenomenon here it, that people who are complaining about wokeness are talking about is an actual turn that has happened on the left side of our politics towards yeah, heightened sensitivity. Of course, there's such a thing as oversensitivity, and that's what the criticism generally amounts to. And, and to your point about um, kind of the specificity or lack thereof, I just want to play for a little bit. Um, what we're talking about when this, we talk about a buzzword, I mean, this has become the ultimate buzzword on the 2024 campaign trail. We will end woke. I think it goes back to this woke mind virus that's infected the left and all these other institutions. This woke self-loathing has swept our country. It's in the classroom, the boardroom, in the back rooms of government. He's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. So, so putting aside the definition for a second, that to me says, uh, as we're moving forward toward 2024, this is going to be a central component of that race. Oh, absolutely. And it already is, right? Um, as you were saying, it has become very much this catch-all, pejorative term that conservatives in particular like to use. And uh, particularly when there's even just like a whiff of an issue having to do uh, with race or gender or sexual orientation, uh, inclusivity, diversity issues. Uh, Republicans in particular have been using the term to go after liberals and Democrats whenever they feel like there is a situation where they're sort of trying to meddle in your personal life, right? So, uh, you know, they're trying to teach our children this or make our children eat this in at, at schools. Uh, so, yeah, it is definitely going to be a hugely uh, defining uh, sort of tool that Republicans use heading into 2024. The, my curiosity will be, as we go toward 2024, once this gets beyond the Republican primary, what do real people who are living their lives think about this? Are they waking up in the morning and thinking, wow, my kid's school is too woke? I, 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 I think that that's just an open question. I don't have an answer to it, but we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> I think they mean black. They mean black.
to get our check. You are now listening, listening to P A R. That's People Activity Radio. And I'm your host, John G. Horse. Horse. Welcome. You have found your family in a peaceful place. PAR is a family-friendly information distribution program seeking seeking to inform non-white people, in particular, black classifieds, and assisting in counter-racist codification. Let's get it in. The title of today's episode is Knowing History, Asking Questions, and Defining Words. One more time, the title of today's episode is Knowing History, Asking Questions, and Defining Words. PAR is a family-friendly information distribution program dedicated to creating less confusion for people subject to non-white in particular black classification. Less confusion with the ultimate goal of solving problems. Replace the system of racism white supremacy with a system of justice. Immediately. Replace the system of racism white supremacy with a system of justice. Immediately. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And I'd like to take this time to give a shout out to all the hardworking John Henryism practitioners, John Henryism practitioners, blue collar law abiding citizens subject to non white, in particular, black classification who take the time to dig into their pockets, their wallets, their purses, their pocketbooks and distributing all pennies, nickels, and dimes that they have to spare. And we'd like to say, much appreciated, and all proceeds given to old John G. and People Activity Radio will be used to keep the show a-coming. John G. Horses Cash App is dollar sign capital J O H N capital H O R S E. Feel free to donate if you feel this program is constructive and worth your time. Did y'all hear that? Fellow Black Classifiers, feel free to donate if you feel this program is constructive and worth your time. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Where do we begin? Where do we begin is always the question, and I am your gracious and humble host, John G. Horse, and this is People Activity Radio. We'd like to acknowledge that we did switch it up a little bit, paying homage to all the grandcestors and ancestors that participated in creating this beautiful discipline that we know as jazz. Ain't nothing wrong with it, and we'd like to summon all that energy from that era, from those grandcestors, to assist us in distributing the information on this particular subject. Hold on, hold on. I like to apologize in advance. You know, this little piano loop is getting an old John G. spirit. You know how we do. Let's get it in. Uh, uh. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And let it fizzle and sizzle and drizzle in your spirit. Uh, uh. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? One more again is always the question. 
everybody's hooping and hollering about a lot of things. A lot of things are going on in society. A lot of things are happening real time. And content creators burning midnight oil trying to get the data out as soon and as quick as possible. But old John G doesn't work that way. Old John G has to sit and think and marinate on subjects that he attempts to discuss on his platform. And I'd like to take this time today to discuss a basic code that we should take seriously, especially in these times, especially in the social media age, especially in the pop culture age where you have content all around every which way you look being produced and disseminated into the atmosphere and the environment. We should take this code that I am discussing, a code that, of course, I received and have applied and implemented in my day-to-day survival in this toxic environment dominated by racism, white supremacy. In this code, it's a basic codification of developing a hunger for knowledge and or knowing history you don't have to take a course you don't have to go into the higher learning institutions basically just knowing the history of the place where you are or your community or your home or your state county whereas whenever you are knowing that history develop a hunger for that because if indeed you're there there's a high probability that your ancestors may have been there unless you relocated and moved around but you understand what I'm saying know the history from which or from where you come from it's very important because in knowing that history when valuing your history it's almost making an investment in valuing valuing yourself. Let me explain. Right now, in real time, there is a reparations movement that have caught fire from, I'd say, the last seven, eight, nine, ten years. The reparations movement specifically has caught, caught fire by people subject to non-white classification, in particular, black classified in the United States. Now, why and where does this reparations cry come from? Well, if you take a historical analysis of United States history, you will see this group of people subject to black classification, prisoners of war, slaves, enslaved, whatever you want to call them, that were forced not only to work for free until death, families, uh, in most cases, split up, children sold off, wife sold off, husband sold off, sister sold off, cousin sold off, mama, daddy, grandma, everybody sold off. Chattel slavery. Not only were they forced to work for free under terroristic conditions, They also were the foundation of the United States economy. They were the stocks and bonds. See, the true is not true. Let me not hoop and holler. I'm I'm really working on that hooping and hollering. Let me lower my tone. But it's personal. Let's move on. Not only were they forced to work for free under treacherous, torturous, inhumane conditions they were also on these plantations north and south doesn't matter what type of plantation it was at a certain point when 
taking people from the continent of Africa was outlawed. People who classified themselves as white and believed in racism, white supremacy, made millions hand over fist, forcing the ancestors to breed on plantations. Yes, they picked cotton and oranges and strawberries and watermelons and did carpentry and welding and all types of other labor. And they were leased off to go work as contractors. Uh, basically, essentially, if you were subject to black classification and you were owned, you were, you were basically an ATM, ATM machine for whoever owned you. They were drawing money out, money out to every which way, including the breeding farms. Yes, I said it. The breeding farms, which is not talked about um, in the context of this slave economy that the United States was built off of. Knowing that history... And understanding that you may descend from those who suffered under those conditions. Having a form of self-respect bring some context and understanding of why there is a movement calling for reparations from people who descend from the foundational United States black classifieds. And there is no movement without the descendants of slaves, the descendants of black classifieds in the United States, identifying and understanding history, aligning themselves with their ancestors, looking at their relationship with the federal government, states' governments, the counties, and the local law enforcement that enforced this torturous, terroristic prison culture upon their ancestors. Anybody with a smidgen of self-respect is going to align themselves with their ancestors because without their ancestors, there would be no them. If their ancestors didn't endure, if their ancestors didn't stop, ask questions, and acknowledge their conditions of slavery, and then make movements to then answer how to solve this problem. Now, the answer to solve this problem was counter-racist violence, maroon societies, um, and that's a whole other history that I'm not getting into on this episode. We're discussing the value, the codification of knowing history, asking questions, and defining words. Now, I took the long route to get to this point. The first clip was a Washington Post report on the history of the movement known as the Lost Cause. And in this report, they highlight the Daughters of the Confederacy's role in erecting Confederate memorials, Confederate monuments, and in particular, Confederate statues starting in the turn of the century uh, around 1915 or 1920. And the Daughters of the Confederacy were descendants. Again, there goes that thing. When you say descend, how do you know you descended from something? Because you have self-respect and you value the history from which you come from. The Daughters of the Confederacy, white women, uh, and suspected white supremacy, suspected white supremacists, and in some case, self-proclaimed white supremacists, advocated for memorials to be erected for the, their ancestors who fought on the traitor side of the United States. They fought for the Confederacy. And from their perspective, from their self-respect, their ancestors were fighting for a noble cause. Now, their ancestors told you what they was fighting for. They would say they were fighting to maintain race, racism, white supremacy, 
and to uh, maintain the institution of slavery because that was fundamental to their position as white supreme masists. Now, I'm not name calling. I'm using the term that they used to describe themselves and their ancestors, their descendants, in particular, the daughters of the Confederacy valued what their ancestors believed in. And uh, these daughters of the Confederacy, they were from wealthy Southern family families. They used their Southern influence and resources to cozy up next to the state officials and politicians and sponsor and finance memorials, monuments, and statues for what they said and defined as the lost cause. Now we're using the term lost cause because it was created by this group called the Daughters of the Confederacy who also used their resources, power, and influence to determine what was going to go in the history books in the South. And in particular, y'all bet not say anything derogatory or negative toward my ancestors who fought for a benevolent honorable cause they were fighting for heritage says the daughters of the confederacy and they were fighting for culture says the daughters of the confederacy y'all bet not mention what they said they was fighting for, racism, white supremacy, y'all bet not mention what they said they wanted to maintain the institution of slavery. Get all that mess up out the books. Now, this is back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Rewriting history. Not only did school book creators follow this mandate in the South, this became the mandate that the United States followed. So you can be hard removed or hard pressed to try to find anything in school curriculum that actually articulates or quotes the Confederate soldiers, self-proclaimed white supremacist reasons from why they were actually calling for arms and seceding from the Union. You can't find what they said, but you can find what the Daughters of Con the Confederacy thought appropriate to be said in school books in the United States of America. And that is, and that is lie culture or deceptive culture known as history. That is powerful. And I brought that up because the second clip behind the Washington Post uh, historical analysis of the Daughters of the Confederacy, I played a clip of our elder, Neely Fuller Jr., breaking down anybody who classifies themselves as white and lies to non-white people, not only are practicing racism, white supremacy, they are showing power. And we're talking about the Daughters of the Confederacy. We're talking about them creating words, defining words. We're talking about them manipulating how history is told in school books in the United States. That's power. Now that's either true or it's not true. Anthony Lee Fuller spoke about the power of lies from people who classify themselves as white. I played a clip of Erica Badu giving her definition of woke. Let's move on. 
after the Erica Badu clip, I played a clip of Black Talk Radio Network's founder and host asking Dr. Tommy Curry about women's suffrage, white feminism, and the daughters of the Confederacy all rolled up into one bunch of people who classify themselves as white, who were women, who were stomped down racist white supremacists. These are their words, not ours. Dr. Curry articulated his position and his analysis of the history that he teaches at the university. And he pretty much confirmed that anybody who's white and who lies to non white people not only are displaying high levels of power they are also practicing racism white supremacy now it's either true or it's not true we sitting here in 2023 hooping and hollering about some crt woke culture moms for liberty etc etc and a lot of people who are, I suspect, a lot of non-white people don't actually draw perspective from their history. I think I have observed a lot of reactionary emotional rhetoric behind strategic war strategy and creating terms and defining terms from people who classify themselves as white and I see a lot of non-white people and I could be in error. Maybe I'm not looking in all the right places. But I see another lot of non-white people reacting with emotion. Not reacting or not applying counter-racist thought, speech, and action. Knowing history, asking questions, and then defining words. Because if you understood the term states' rights and parents' rights in the context of the stop woke legislation that's being uh, applied, in particular in my home state of Florida, what's the difference? White supremacy is being practiced. White supremacy is war on non-white people, in particular people subject to black classification. If that's true, any up, mount up, and get to the business of countering the war strategy. Let's move on. My synopsis is the Daughters of the Confederacy are still putting in work. Yeah, the direct descendants and the founders of the Daughters of the Confederacy may have transitioned or passed away but their descendants are still here and their descendants still know history. Their descendants still value reconciliation with the United States of America. And when I say Confederate descendants value reconciliation with the United States, they refine the terms and words in their culture. They define racism, white supremacy with Southern heritage. They defined states' rights with a term called parents' rights. They define fighting to maintain slavery and valuing with the terms valuing heritage and culture. They know history, they ask questions, and they define words. They are practicing war. They are practicing what I perceive as racism, white supremacy. They're just refining it. And refining is basically accepting what you've been doing ain't going to work. And we have to refine our behavior and our culture so that we can maintain power and keep all this re all these resources that our ancestors who believed in racism white supremacists or who believed in racism white supremacy their words not mine 
To maintain these resources, we got to keep our foot on non-white people's neck, in particular people subject to black classification. Now, that's either true or it's not true. And I hope, and I hope, and I, hope I have contributed, I have contributed to, less confusion. to less confusion. And always remember, and always remember keep learning. Keep learning. Stay codified. Stay codified.